0: all the controls on this remote unit, the volume is fully variable. Should the telephone ring or guests arrive... So, I'm very glad to present Professor Emery Brown. And uh, you are a very learned person. Before you were a doctor, you were a mathematician. And, uh, and then you went into medicine and into anesthesia, and now you are uh, still uh, practicing anesthetist, but also a professor of anesthesia, and also a professor of medical engineering and comput- uh, computational neuroscience at MIT. Right. And uh, lots more, too, but we don't have time for all your titles. So
1: I told my wife not to send that stuff to you. <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and today you're going to talk about... Uh, general anesthesia, how it works and uh, what we know and what we don't know.
1: Right. And a little bit how to monitor it.
0: And how to monitor it. Right.
1: Right. All right. Okay. Great. 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 Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks, guys, for coming. The, uh, so what I'm going to do is, uh, this is the outline I'm going to follow. I'm going to start off with something very basic about the neurological exam. I just want to show you a couple things about the neurological exam and how you can use it to, to track patients in the operating room. Like, like for example, Um, you know, one of the things we constantly have to be doing when we're taking care of patients, figuring out, is the person unconscious, how unconscious is he? And I'm going to talk mostly about using the EEG to do that, but I want to just show you some things about the neuro exam, which I think are very helpful. All right, then I'm going to to talk about this thing which I call Breme's Principle, and I'll make clear what that is when we get to it, but it, it has to do with something that all anesthetics do, which is they all produce slow oscillations, all right? And if you use the EEG like I do, this is like, it's like bread and butter, but you'll you'll see what I mean. Then I'm going to show you something about, so I'm going to show you a little bit about how the different patterns that the different anesthetics produce. And I'll explain to you why they do that, all right? Then I'm going to show you something like what happens when you combine drugs together. and uh, um, And then... I, I may say something about about reanimation. I, I may save that for for later on. But I, I want to go through the first two, the first three. All right. So, so what is general anesthesia? So it's this drug-induced state, which is reversible, and you have antinociception, unconsciousness, amnesia, akinesia, and stability and control of the physiologic systems. All right. The definition is important to state because this isn't something that th- this is a definition which we've put out there that I think allows us to define what anesthesia is but other people have different definitions I mean they'll say all it is is basically you know paralysis and unconsciousness for example but I think we need to refer to all of these and in particular I have starred this one here anti nociception I'm drawing the difference between nociception and pain So, pain is conscious perception of something which is nociceptive so if you're unconscious you can't perceive it but you can have a nociceptive response. So for example, if I just tried to do a thoracic, thoracic surgery on just propofol, the patient's heart rate and blood pressure would be off the wall. The stress hormones would be off the wall. So he's he's responding to the nociceptive stimulus. It's technically not pain because he's not conscious of it. When he wakes up, he's conscious of it. So that's that's the distinction I'm making there. Uh, And the others, instability and control of the physiologic systems. How general anesthesia works isn't a mystery. And I'm going to give you some ideas about how we think it works. In fact, I'll just tell you how we think it works. From what I'm going to show you is the drugs produce oscillations. The oscillations make it very difficult for the various parts of the brain to communicate. And as long as you maintain those oscillations, this communication is interrupted. And then when you you stop the drugs, the oscillations subside. And the oscillations are actually tied to how the neurons spike in the brain. I'll show you that with a little bit with propofol. All right, so it, it, it's not it's not mysterious at all. All right, so this is the first thing I just want to tell you about a little bit about the neurologic exam for anesthesiologists. So this is a review which we just published a few months ago in Anesthesiology. sort of suggesting how you can use the neuro exam in your when you're taking care of your patients. So I'm going to do it here. All right, I'm going to start with this video. So I'm going to show this video, but so please nobody record it because. Uh, I want to show it to you for its teaching purposes, but I can't say that I, I can't say that I know where the permissions are for it anymore. But so if if you, as long as I know you're not going to record it, we're good. All right, don't have your cell phone sitting up there doing like that (laughs) under the table. All right, so this is a gentleman that I took care of a few years ago, Um, and actually he wasn't my patient. We just decided one day we wanted to go over and just take a video of someone going off under anesthesia because we see it, but we don't see it. We don't pay attention to it. Then we're gonna go back and dissect it. We're gonna go back and dissect what happened to this guy. So he's 68 years old. He has an umbilical hernia here. You can repair these under local, some surgeons do, but this, this one's gonna get general anesthesia for it. And we're gonna induce general anesthesia by giving him propofol. But before I do that, I'm gonna do a series of maneuvers with him. I'm gonna turn his head. I'm gonna have him track my finger. I'm gonna check his muscle strength, right? cuz he's going to lose all these things when he becomes unconscious. All right? So let me just play the video here. So I'm going to turn his So I'm going to turn his head, you know, and his eyes go the opposite direction, right? So you know he could resist me and that they wouldn't but he's not he's got normal motor strength before he starts and what I did a second ago is having track my finger like this because that's what I'm gonna do as he goes off under anesthesia alright so we're pre oxygenating now we're pre oxygenating right and then uh, so now once that's done where the words come on the screen So right there, we have just started giving him the propofol, okay? And I'm asking him to track my finger. So watch what happens to his eyes in just a second. Do they fix in the midline? He blinks a bit. So he's unconscious now, right? So, so now you see his eyes are fixed, right? right? He's, he's unresponsive. He's not breathing. His heart's still beating. You can hear it, right? And then. <laughs> his arm. He's like, so that's just from a dose of propofol. Okay. So, so let's go back and dissect what happened to him. All right. So we saw he stopped breathing, lost muscle tone, and became unconscious. So what's a good argument for why these things happen? So I just want to, I just want to go and be clinicians and talk about how anesthesia is working. Then we'll come and try to put more neuroscience details. to So let's just be clinicians about this. So he got propofol, right? So propofol... One of the places it went to was the brainstem. So how does it get to the brainstem? The two vertebral arteries fuse, like right there. When they fuse, they form the basilar artery, and the basilar artery runs right there, right under the bottom there. Okay? So it comes in, and so propofol is GABAergic. There are tons of GABAergic neurons sitting in here, particularly like in the dorsal respiratory group, the ventral respiratory group. And what they do is they control the respiratory rhythms. inhibition and excitation controlled. So if you push that more to inhibition, what do you think is going to happen to the respirations? It's going to shut off the respiratory centers. Okay, so that's the first step. Then, as it comes up here a little bit further, so what I've put on here are the various arousal centers. And I've color coded them. They follow a color code. So here's the color code. The blue ones, which are sitting in the middle here, like that, they are the monoaminergic neurotransmitters. So there's like dorsal raphe releases, hit, releases uh, um, serotonin, Lo- locus ceruleus releases norepinephrine, tuberomammillary nucleus releases histamine, and the ventral periaqueductal gray releases dopamine, monoaminergic. And then look here in the front, here, and in the back, are green nuclei, so they release acetylcholine. So it's kind of like, roughly speaking, in the brainstem, there's kind of like you have between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system in the periphery. There's a similar organization, the brainstem, where the monoaminergic are sitting in the middle, and these guys are sitting in the front and the back. All right, now, so I just have to tell you about one bit of anatomy, which if you don't know. See this area here, the preoptic area of the hypothalamus? It's like my wrist. It sends out projections onto each one of those nuclei they're all inhibitory. They're GABAergic. So when propofol comes up through here, it hits these guys right here, right? It takes them out. And it's one of the things that contributes to him being unconscious, because these are the arousal centers that go up the thalamus and cortex and basically give you the arousal center that keeps you awake, all right? Does that make sense? Seem reasonable? All right, and now the next part is, that's not the only reason he's unconscious, but it's one of the reasons. I just want to talk about all the brainstem regions f- for the moment. And right here, you see these nuclei here: the pontine reticular nucleus and the medullary reticular nucleus. So these are motor relays, which go to the what we call the anti-gravity muscles. All right. You know, in the United States, we have cheerleaders who lead. You know, like they do. You know, maneuvers like that. You know, with, and they're jumping around and that sort of thing. So they have to flex their arms and flex their legs at the same time. So they're using these, these nuclei here. So it turns out if you take out these nuclei, you actually get a flaccid paralysis. And one of the reasons we know this is that when patients come into the emergency room and they're suspected of having a brainstem stroke and they show up with a flaccid paralysis, it gives the, it gives the neurologist a hint that the person may have a clot in the Bowser artery. All right So I'm just being a, just being a clinician and showing that if you use these ideas, how the anesthetic is working is not there's no mystery there, at least there's part of it's not a mystery. So this is the sort of stuff that that I just want to give you some sense of, all right So clinically we can figure out what's going on. And if you look here, so so these are the arousal centers sitting here, and what I've put here are like the locations of the various nuclei that we use to test out our various reflexes. So the oculocephalic reflex, you see how cranial nerves 3, 6, I left off 4, and 8, which are here, are sitting right next to these guys. So it's an inference. If these guys are taken out, it makes sense that you would see these guys gone too. So we could clinically see when the effect on these nuclei occurred. All right? And that's what the neurologists do all the time. Most of the time, the neurologists aren't interested in whether or not you can move your eyes. They're interested in knowing whether the parts of the brain down there are functioning. So we can do the same thing. And what's really cool is you can do this the other way when the person's coming to. And you can actually see them. You can, you can see when the reflex comes back. So in particular, the corneal reflex, like right here. So the corneal reflex is, is uh, 5 and 7. So again, sitting right near where these arousal centers are. So you don't have to take a bit of cotton or anything like that and put in the eye. All you need to do is just take a drop of sterile water and just drop it on the eye, and you should see a nice consensual blink, right? I can tell you that if we'd done that on that guy there, nothing would happen. Remember, she checked the lash reflex? Do you guys check the lash reflex? Did you learn about a lash reflex in medical school? You learn about a lash reflex as opposed to a corneal reflex. No, that's what I'm saying. In anesthesia school, so well, from medical school, we learned about the corneal reflex, all right? I didn't learn about the lash reflex. So, But the corneal reflex, you can do very easily. Just drop a little sterile water on the eye. should blink consensually. So you can see that they're lost. So this is a, just a bit of the, the neuro exam, which you can use to figure out what the drugs are doing. It's very straightforward to do, and I do it all the time, all right? And again, just another projection, just to show you. See, the nuclei are here. And you can see over here, these are where these, you know, the clinically things that we can assess are sitting. They're sitting right next to these nuclei, so we can use them in this indirect way to make an inference. All right. So now, let's talk electrophysiology. So I don't have that guy's EEG, but I have it on another patient. So this is a lady who's 68 years old, and she's going to have a thyroid surgery. She's about 60 years old. She's got, um, she weighs about 80 kilograms. So I'm going to give her 150 milligrams of propofol, just the bolus, just like we did with the last gentleman. And we're just going to watch her EEG. So in our operating rooms, we have EEG, which we can put on all patients. It has six contacts, four leads. So it has two leads on the left here, two leads on the right. That's what you're seeing here and here. And there's the two on the right. And the ground and the reference are in the middle. All right, so I'm just going to play this. And we're just going to match up what happens to, what happens to her with what happened to the gentleman just a second ago. Now, if you've never looked at EEG before like this, let's see. We didn't see them. They went by a second ago. So, this is going to get very noisy, because you know when you inject propofol into a small vein, it burns like crazy. So, she's doing this. She's tensing up. See, she's tensing up. That's actually going to be very good for pedagogical purposes, because we're going to be able to see exactly when the drug takes effect. All right? So, she's tensing up. We're asking her to just bear with us for a moment. And see the EMG? See the EMG is increasing. Now, see there right there? It just took effect. See the boom. Slow oscillations. She lost consciousness right there when the slow oscillations came on. And now she's in burst suppression. So it goes flat and it bursts. All right? Oh, we are. We, I mean, and and I take responsibility for it. I did it. You know, I mean, this this is me. This is actually my patient. All right. So let's just take a look at what we just saw. So she was awake, right? She was at five microvolts, and then she went to the sedative state. I was talking. You didn't really see it, but. She went into the state where she had oscillations. When, 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 all, when it broke and all, and all of a sudden it got very regular, just like this, at about 12 to 16 cycles per second. These are called beta oscillations. If you wanted to perfectly titrate your propofol so that she was just sedated and not for like a colonoscopy or something like that, this is the pattern, the EG pattern you would shoot for. She skipped over this. She went right to here. There's large slow oscillations like that. We saw that. Then we saw her go into burst suppression. So, Only other time you see this is someone's hypothermic, they're in coma, and that's why Bijan was saying she's overdosed, this is a super deep state of anesthesia, and in between the burst here, she's isoelectric. All right, so what I just want to make, these are called slow oscillations because they're less than one hertz, less than one cycle per second, and we're going to talk about the slow and alpha oscillations, but the main point I want you to take a a note of is, see how this gets bigger as we move down? So this is five microvolts. The oscillations here are 20 to 50 microvolts. So what's occurring is that there are two things. This is the strongest EEG signal there is. It's stronger than when you're looking at someone in coma. It's stronger than when you're looking to to diagnose sleep disorders, when you're using it for behavioral studies, or when you're using it to like track patient state under meditation or something like that. And you saw one of the reasons. When the drug takes over, all the movement artifact disappears. In addition, the drugs are making large parts of the brain work in concert to generate these very regular oscillations. And the, iron- the irony of this is, is this is the strongest EEG signal there is, but we as anesthesiologists use it the least, right? And so there's a lot of information here which we should use on a day-to-day basis to take care of our patients and dose our drugs, all right? So this is the main point, and I'm going to give you some points on this. I'm going to show you this. A primary mechanism in which the drugs work is that alter states of arousal through producing and maintaining oscillations which impede communication among brain regions. And I'm going to show you in just a second here that all oscillations produce slow delta oscillations. So a slow oscillation is something less than one hertz, one cycle per second, and a delta oscillation is something between one and four. So low frequency oscillations, all right? And let's figure out why that's the case, all right? So to do this, this is what I call Breme's principle. So Frederick Breme, was a Belgian neurophysiologist who studied the arousal centers back in the 30s and he did two sets of experiments. He did them on cats. In the first set of experiments what he did was he severed the spinal cord, separating the spinal cord from the brainstem and the brain. And he called this experiment the Insefale isole, all right? And when he measured the EEG on the cats, what he actually saw was an EEG that looked awake. All right? Then he did a, the second set of experiments in, in other cats where he severed it here at the level of the brain stem. So you're separating mostly the brain and the brain stem, so the, the midbrain pons and medulla intact with the spinal cord just above the cerebellum here. And he called this the silvo isolé, silvo for cerebrum or not necessarily brain, but c- cerebrum, isolated cerebrum, and he has, he saw these slow delta oscillations. So that was the first hint that there's something here that's responsible for arousal, okay? And now what we know is anytime you take away brainstem inputs, so I'm just gonna, sort of correlate what I told you with the video with what I, with the first video, what I showed you in the second video, in the first video we saw that the guy's eyes fixed in the midline, suggesting there's a brainstem effect. In the second video, I showed you you got slow oscillations. If you put that together with this, it says that what we were doing was we were taking out the brainstem inputs going up the thalamus and cortex. And when that occurs, the thalamus and cortex hyperpolarize, and and they produce the the slow oscillations that we saw. So this is all consistent with this very, very old physiology. So it turns out that all of the anesthetics have targets in the brainstem, and they're going to produce slow oscillations. Alright? So I need to tell you a little bit about spectral analysis to, 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 to make this concrete. So if you had a raw EEG trace like this, and you knew what f- frequencies you wanted to pick out, you could build a filter, and you could pick out a 10-hertz frequency, or you could pick out a slow frequency, right? But what happens is, is that the frequencies are, are probably changing, even ever so slightly. So what we do is, we take a segment of data like this, and we compute what we call the spectrum. So the spectrum takes the data, puts it in the frequency domain, and separates it out by frequency. It tells me, as a function of frequency, how big the amplitude or power is as a function of frequency. So if you see, this is the spectrogram of this particular signal here, and it says I have a lot of something at low frequency here, and I have something at about 10 cycles per second, all right? Now, that's just one 10-second data data interval, so what we're going to need to do is slide this along over time. Well, if you slide this along over time, you get a three-dimensional structure, which is called the spectrogram, because now we have time as another axis. So here's the one right there that I'm showing you. And then over time, as we continue to do this, we see up here we have this low-frequency part, which is big here, which is there, and that's the part in the signal here you see that goes up and down like that and then you have the higher frequency part which is doing this and that's that piece there which is here and here is that over time it stayed kind of stable over time right so you have a mountain here a valley there a mountain there it's kind of like the river over there right? it's just lower right but if you look at it from the top you're like a helicopter flying over top, right, it's gonna look like this. So there's the low-frequency piece, there's the valley in the middle, and there's the other high-frequency piece. The amplitudes are quite large. So this is a classic signature of propofol. If you give someone, a young person, 18 to 35 propofol, this is the signature you're gonna see. And that's what we're seeing here. So here's this, this is a young woman, she's 19 years of age, she's having a small procedure done so I gave her a bolus dose of propofol here. There's a slow oscillation that she produced there. And then I ran an infusion at 100 mics per kilo per minute here. And then you can see right there that she's got a nice band sitting right there and a band sitting there. It's the, those oscillations there. So she's anesthetized with propofol. It right, turns out that all the gabergic drugs, propofol, etomidate, sevoflurane, isoflurane because they work on GABA, they'll produce the same pattern. All right, now, so how do we use this? All right, so let's look, so I, I claim that all the anesthetics produce slow oscillations. And so there you can see the slow oscillations generated by propofol, and we saw them before. But let me just tell you a little bit about what we know as far as how they work. So at our hospital, I'm sure you have them here. You have people who come for epilepsy surgery. So they get electrodes implanted in their brains. And we put in some research electrodes also. So what they're doing is they're trying to locate the epileptic focus or foci. So they stay in the hospital for about five to seven days off medications. When they seize enough and they figure out where the epileptic focus is, they go back in, they remove the electrodes, and then they come back in and do a a resection of what they think is the epileptic focus or foci. So when they come back to the operating room that second time, you have a human that has electrodes in his or her brain so you can actually measure what the neurons do in response to getting propofol. So not just field potentials or... It's what the neuron spiking are doing. So this is like the holy grail. I mean, we transmit information by, by, by neuron spiking. So this is what this is showing. So here's one of those patients. And these are three recording sites here on the brain. And so you can see the person's awake, and you have this nice kind of irregular what's called the synchronous EEG. All right? Now, you see how the neurons are spiking down here? They can spike pretty much wherever they want to. There's no, they're not being altered, they're not being constrained. Now look what happens after they're, uh, the person's unconscious. And this is a neuron here that's recorded next to the red electrode. So the oscillations in the red electrode are doing this. right there. And these are, at you can see, it's about a, half a, it's about a half a hertz. It takes it about two seconds to make a full cycle. So it's, it's really, it is a, a slow oscillation. And look, the neuron goes spike, spike, spike. It's very slow, all right? So that's what's happening next to this neuron here, next to this electrode here. The same thing is happening to the electrode, this, the neurons here. And more importantly, the same thing is happening to the one over here where the green electrode is but they're out of phase so it's like spike 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 it's fragmented right so now if neurons being able to spike in some sort of synchronous way is essential for communication which it is it's going to be very hard for you to communi- for these parts of the brain to communicate so this is happening all across the cortex so this is this is probably the best evidence i have in humans of what's happening to the human brain under anesthesia and why you would be unconscious. I mean, we made all these kind of clinical arguments using the, the EEG and what have you, but now if we put that together with the slow oscillations indicating that the hyperpolarized cortex is making so the neurons are spiking very infrequently, you can see how you would use this in the operating room. So once this you know the slow oscillation is there from propofol, you can feel very uncomfortable very comfortable the person's unconscious. I'll say, so there's the mechanism. So I drew it out here for propofol. Propofol, as I was mentioning before, remember they're inhibitory interneurons everywhere. They're up here in the cortex, so becoming unconscious is the effect is up here as well. But here's that, that pathway I was showing you. See, see, the, see the red projections coming out of here? They're inhibitory, hitting each one of those brainstem centers. And then remember around the thalamus, the thalamus has this net. Called the reticular thalamus, right? Reticulus, reticularis, like from Latin for net. So it's sitting around the, the, the thalamus. It's an inhibitory network. It's gabergic. So you've got gabergic effects here, gabergic effects here, gabergic effects there. So it's very easy to understand why someone's unconscious when you give a drug. It's true for cevoflurane also. And then, so, but just to show you, so that's like normal communication going back and forth between the thalamus and cortex. The alpha oscillation is a little bit different. Remember, it's just as strong. The 10-hertz oscillation was just as strong as the slow oscillation. So this is someone's cortex normally communicating. When you see the 10-hertz oscillation come on, instead of communicating like this, the thalamus and cortex are doing this. So we have some very good data, both experimental and modeling data, that suggests that this high-frequency oscillation that you see here is this 10 hertz oscillation going back and forth between thalamus and cortex. So you've got two things. You're tying up the cortex, excuse me, you're tying up the thalamus and cortex and the cortex is fragmented. So again, if I saw that pattern I showed you a few seconds ago, if either one of any if either one of the two ideas I've suggested is correct, I have a very robust way of knowing someone's unconscious under propofol. So problems of awareness that we talk about frequently are you know, well that are, people are, are afraid of—it's a solved problem if they use the EEG the way I'm suggesting. All right. So now I'm just going to go through and just show you really quickly that the other there's a reason for all the other drugs to produce slow oscillation. Do you guys use much dexmedetomidine in the operating room or or in the in the ICU? In the ICU. Right. So mostly as a sedative or in the or in the operating room as an adjunct. Right. It wouldn't be a primary anesthetic. But again, so. I claim it has brainstem targets because look, so here is light dexmedetomidine, so you sa- the, the spindles up there, see the, they're, they're not as thick as the 10 hertz oscillation, they're, they're intermittent, they're like, the 10 hertz oscillation is like this, it's very regular, very... This, is, this is much thinner compared to what you saw with propofol, and you see down here and down here, you see the slow oscillations, so this says, if Breme's principle is correct, there's a brainstem target, so if you look here, See the locus ceruleus there? So this drug works by blocking the release of norepinephrine. So here's the locus ceruleus coming out of the brain stem. And what does it do? It projects on the basal forebrain, it projects the cortex widely, it projects the preoptic area of the hypothalamus, it projects to the thalamus. So when you take away the norepinephrine in these sites up here, you, again, hyperpolarize the cortex. There's less activity. We can see it in the slow oscillations, all right? Different set, of, different set of targets, but the same principles applying, all right? And then here, this is like my favorite, nitrous oxide. So I didn't know this. When you, so one of the things that we do, you, you guys probably don't use nitrous oxide anymore, do you? Or you, or you do? Oh, cool. So you'll appreciate this because if you're back in the OR, you can check this out, right? So the patient was on isofluorine. all right? So here's the spectrum with isofluorine. The one thing I have to tell you is that for the inhaled ethers, in addition to the alpha oscillation, the slow oscillation, there's a third oscillation in here, which is the theta oscillation. And I, 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 um, we don't quite know why it comes about, but as soon as you go over one MAC, up to one MAC, propofol and isoflurane and sevoflurane look identical. When you get above one MAC, you get a third oscillation. Right? And I don't know why that happens, it's, but it's very robust, very robust empirically. So what we do is we often, at the end of the case, switch over to nitrous oxide so we can wake the patient up off of nitrous oxide because it's easier to blow off than, than the, uh, the sevoflurane. Right? So that's what happened here. So turn the isoflurane down, very low level, turn the nitrous oxide up. So that happened back here. And you see how the spectrum like, slowly starts to break down? Then all of a sudden, it just goes boom. It just drops down to there. And this is what you see, just these very large slow oscillations. All, that high power, all this high frequency power just literally disappeared. All right. And in fact, I'll come back to the mechanism in a second, but this is what it looks like on the screen. And this is, this is really easy. I didn't like go Photoshop this or something, right? You know, so you have these oscillations, which, and they're perfect like half-hertz oscillation. It goes up and down twice in basically one second. So again, I, and I, I, didn't, I, I can say honestly say I didn't know this. If you go back here, it doesn't last. See, I kept the, I kept the nitrous just as it was. It doesn't last. It actually switches over to this high frequency, period here. And this is what you look in the textbooks, and they tell you that nitrous oxide does. It doesn't do that. It goes through this stage first, then it does that high-dose nitrous oxide, right? So, and I'll just tell you this about this one other case here before. So, I was taking care of this woman who was a drug addict, and so she had her IV here in her hand like that. So, we gave her the propofol on induction, and it starts to burn, and you know how drug addicts are very, very sensitive. She goes, ah! and she raises her arm like this and her IV pulls out so my colleague that I was working with you know was very quick and so she quickly turned up the nitrous oxide and put a mask on her face because she was like breathing like crazy And she starts generating these large slow oscillations and I said I know this is an emergency but I just gotta take a picture of this right quick because this is just how so I took a quick picture you know just to save it just for this this reason, and you can see them, look at them, they're like, they're like enormous, the same sort of thing, just happen. So is there a brainstem mechanism? We think there is. So in, uh, uh, nitrous oxide works by blocking NMDA receptors, and there's a very important glutamatergic pathway coming out of the brainstem, the parabrachial nucleus, the medium pontine reticular formation going to basal forebrain and going to central thalamus. So you have, you have substrate, again, Breme's principle. All right? Different different set of targets, but totally there. And then finally, I just want to show you ketamine. So um, if you give low-dose ketamine, what you'll see is just a high-frequency oscillation. And one of the things you should realize about ketamine at low dose, at low dose, ketamine blocks the inhibitory interneurons. And the reason is is that it's use-dependent. So, the inhibitory interneurons are controlling most of the pyramidal neurons, so their channels are constantly opening and closing. For ketamine to work, it has to actually get into the channel, all right? So at low dose, the probability that it gets into the channel of an interneuron is greater than getting to the channel of a pyramidal neuron, so you shut down the interneurons you remove their control on the paramiline neurons so the EEG speeds up. You get a very fast, and that's what you see. Like the state you see when people are hallucinating, under ketamine it's like that, right? Because the connections are still there, they're just not controlled anymore. If you give what we might call a surgical dose of anesthesia, surgical dose of, of, uh, excuse me, surgical dose of ketamine for anesthesia, you will get a pattern like this I'm showing. It goes like this, then whew, goes back and forth between these two. And here's what it looks like in the spectrum. High frequency, low frequency. High frequency, low frequency. High frequency, low. It goes back and forth between the two states. And again, so Breme's principle says that there has to be a brainstem target. Well, I just showed it to you. It's the, one, it's the, same, one for, the same one for nitrous oxide. Okay, So you can easily explain like, what's going on there. In addition, remember, ketamine hits here at the spinal cord, this first synapse coming to the spinal cord. And the reason the pattern doesn't look the same is like with nitrous oxide, because nitrous oxide doesn't affect interneurons, all right? Sorry. That's yeah. the first 60 seconds of
2: the inducing academy.
1: Yes, exactly, or, or, or being on an infusion, or just taking a 60-second chunk. Does it keep
2: like
1: Yeah, if you, if you keep that infusion running, it'll look just like that, exactly. That's, what, that's what, It's pretty wild. So this is kind of the point that I'm making. If you look at the EEG like this, you know, you might be able to tell me that these are have different patterns or what have you. But if you move into the frequency domain and you look at them like this, you can see the differences much more clearly. So here's a clear picture of like the ketamine by itself, low-dose ketamine, not the high dose. You see how the oscillation's up here at 30 Hertz? That's quite different from propofol, which is down here at 10 hertz. So each of the anesthetics has a signature, right? The signature, we've gone through a little bit of this, the signature can be inferred from looking at where the drug's acting, where the targets are, and what have you. And so we use these in the operating room to make decisions about dosing the drugs for patients. So, let me just show you what happens as a function of age. So now, you know, we all know that's propofol, right? Someone who's 30, all right? Here's someone who's 57. So you see the same pattern, it's shifted down a little bit here. But it's it's basically the same pattern, you know. So this guy here could be that guy's dad, let's say. All right. So here's a lady who's eighty-one. All right. So you can see she, you can see the the ten hertz oscillation is faint, but also very importantly, she's lost all the high frequency oscillations. Remember, it's the high frequency, the gamma oscillations that are present there when we're mentating or what have you. All right. So she has absence of these mentation oscillations. And she has the appearance of these guys here. So it suggests that she's well anesthetized. And this is a lady I took care of a few years back. She had a tumor on her chest, the size of an American football. It took the thoracic surgeons the better part of six hours to remove it. And we were able to keep her well anesthetized, by following the EEG and not, and not overdosing her because we were following the EEG. And she had a, a thoracic epidural in for pain control and what have you. So we were able to wake her up on a dime at the end of the case. Here's the part that's a little bit sobering. These two guys are the same age. His EEG looks like hers. Me, his EEG looks like his, his EEG looks like hers. So we age different physically. What's kind of wild is we, our brains probably age differently. And, and so the, the interesting part is maybe you could see it under anesthesia. So if you forget about anesthesia for the purposes of giving someone drugs to put them in a state so they could have surgery, think of it as a neuroscience experiment. So I'm going to put in a stimulus. And the stimulus is, I'm going to make your brain circuits oscillate. So you're nice and young. I put it in. You oscillate like that. And as you get older, it slows down. And the rate at which it slows down probably reflects, to some extent, how good you've been to yourself or how bad you've been to yourself. right? So this could actually be maybe a little stress test for the brain. Maybe we bring people and give them a little anesthesia I mean, I feel like I'm looking behind, you know, behind the curtain. I see some of these people's, you know, brains and that sort of thing. And I I can tell you some allegories about that. But you can guess what the kids look like. There's a three-year-old. There's a 14-year-old. And you see, if you look at this, you can see it has the same pattern, right? But but the dynamics are broader and they change, you know, as a function of age. And if you look right here, you know, like, one of the things, like these monitors, like BIS or what have you, they say they don't work in kids, right? But you can see if you develop a monitor on people in this cohort, you know, like the 18-year-old, or, sorry, the, the 30-year-old, up to about like the 50-year-old or what have you, and you don't have any of these people, the, the young kids in there. So if it picks a, a place up here in the spectrum where typically older patients don't have any power, now you come across over here, or you come across over here, they have a lot of power so you can see why it's gonna read high when it would read low in somebody who was older, right? So it's, it's not a mystery why this thing doesn't work. People go, oh my god, it doesn't work in kids. If you look at it this way you can see exactly why it doesn't work and you can know the person is profoundly unconscious. And for the reason it changes with age is straightforward. So just take a neuron and as someone gets older the neuron just changes. The myelin sheath breaks down, you don't produce as much neurotransmitter, the dendrites are not as active as they were when the person was younger, the mitochondrial doesn't produce as much uh, ATP, and the cell volume actually shrinks as I'm just showing here with these images comparing someone who's in their thirties to someone who's in their seventies. So you don't have to invoke anything like Alzheimer's or what have you. It's brain development in one case and then neurodegeneration in the other. And in fact, you guys are young, but you're past your peak too. The peak power in the EEG is when you're about six to eight years of age, you know. The 81-year-old woman's like basically out there. And this is just an empirical observation. I can't say we didn't predict this or anything, so the peak's there, and so you guys are on the downward slope too, you know, so you can't get too self-righteous about that. But and I just want to show you very young kids Three months old, three month-olds, just slow oscillations everywhere. Something happens at four to six months. At four months, you switch over and you produce alpha oscillations and slow oscillations across the entire brain. So, and again, we think that this is just representing the brain developing, the thalamus and cortex finally being able to connect, and the inhibition being at the right level. Remember, the brain, the developing brain goes from being more excitatory to inhibitory over time. And then just some practical points. Slow oscillations everywhere in very young kids, less than three months of age. In older patients, patients once they get beyond a certain point, 60, 70 sometimes, they have no alpha oscillations. You'll see this very frequently. And as we were talking about at lunch, people who are really sick with rip roaring infections, they produce just these big slow oscillations also. And this is because the excited, the, uh, Inflammatory mediators are shutting off the brain stem. And then I just want to say two sentences about combinations. I showed you these. We've just been talking about single drugs. They look like that. But what happens if I combine some of these? So I'm just going to go over a couple of these just because they're useful to know. So if you take propofol and you combine it with dex, if you take propofol and combine it with remifentanil, what do you think it would look like? Something altogether different, if you had to guess. So which one, is, which one is seemingly dominant? Did you say the propofol? Yeah, that's right. The propofol is, right. Propofol is, right? So it's probably going to mask what you would see from if you gave the dex by itself, right? That's indeed what happens. If you give them together, they look just like propofol, all right? The same thing is true of sevoflurane. If you have sevofluorin index, and you have sevofluorin in REMI, it's just going to look like cevofluorine, like that. But where you will see the difference is, let's say this is the oscillatory pattern that you got. Remember, in that young woman, I did this with 100 mics per kilo per minute. All right. So you'll get the same dynamics, but at a lower dose. And the reason is, is because... Now, Remy and DEX are helping to hyperpolarize the cortex together, so you need less propofol to generate the propofol dynamic. So you won't see it on the pattern in the EEG. You'll see it in the dose of propofol that you need to generate the same state. Okay. Here's one where you will see a change. If you have someone on, like, sevoflurane, and you give a bolus of, of ketamine, see how you had this nice, stable alpha oscillation here? You can see where he gave the bolus. Right there, boom. And it jumps right up. Now remember, if you had ketamine by itself, it would be up here at 30 hertz, all right? Here it's a compromised frequency. And the reason is, now you know all the neurophysiology why that's the case, why this is the case. So propofol comes in, and it makes the inhibitory interneurons more effective, right? So it's helping to inhibit through inhibitory interneurons. GABAergic, right? Ketamine comes along and says, Let's take those inner neurons out. So it takes them out. So they're both competing for the inner neurons. So for a while, the ketamine dose dominates, takes them out. So, so the, you, you have slightly more excitation than you do in the cortex. And you can see the effect of the ketamine wearing off here over time. Like if you kept an infusion up here, this would stay like right there at basically about 20, 20 hertz. It's a, it's a nice compromise between about 10 and 30. All right? And so this is what I've just shown you, how you might be able to use the neuro exam. I've shown you a little bit about why this Breme's principle, so drugs acting at brainstem targets or brainstem projections, that the anesthetics, the signatures change pretty dramatically with age, probably due to brain development and brain aging. And I've shown you a little bit about what happens to the EEG patterns. Uh, when you're looking at combinations of drugs you can infer them from knowing something about how the individual patterns are produced so I I know you guys don't don't use the EEG here but uh, I I live by it I every case I've done now since September of 2011 I use the EEG we've offloaded the the data we you know have this very large database and these are just examples that I've taken from that, that database we have online training courses to basically show you how to use the EEG and uh, it's changed my practice dramatically. And the stuff I'm gonna talk about this afternoon, later on this afternoon about how to dose the drugs, with, in the case of multiple, using multimodal anesthesia, is predicated on having some way to monitor the brain and know what the effects of the drugs are so I can then change my, my drug dosing accordingly. And I think if we do this and we get away from ideas which are based solely on things like MAC or, or what have you, you know, we'll have a much more precise way of being anesthesiologist. All right. Voila. Questions? Questions? Burning comments.
0: So you showed beginning the brainstem and uh, how the different nuclei were Mm -hmm. put to sleep. Is that because of the the order that the basilaris comes and the the way the blood comes? are the first effects, always on the uh, cortical. Uh, um, I
1: vortex? can't. I can't say they are. I honestly can't say they are. What What I can say is that I. I feel very comfortable saying that the effects are there, because you know the, the. If you look at it, the 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 propofol is getting everywhere pretty quickly, and in fact, the first thing we saw were beta oscillations in the in the video with the lady, and so those are cortical effects actually, but. I guess all I'm trying to make the statement of is that we can infer that there's a very strong brainstem effect, and we can infer that clinically. So the, the one piece of clinical information is just by doing our neuro exam. And the second piece of clinical information is just knowing what I call Breme's principle about the production of slow oscillations. So I, I I don't I've seen everything happen. I've seen people like stop breathing and have their eyes wide open still. Most of the time what I see is people you know these areas tend to shut down, and breathing may go away a few seconds or so later. But I mean, just watch it. You, you tell me what you see. You know when you're inducing patients. But if you ask people, so the other thing which I also do very often is I ask people to count backwards. I mean, it's just like in the movies, they come to the art they expect to be just like in the movies. So I tell them to count back. Start at a hundred and count backwards, right? And it's really interesting. You know, most people will get to somewhere around about eighty-five or so right? And, uh, you know, and then you'll see them stop and they'll go like uh, 84, uh, 82. So counting turns out to be complex. You have to remember what the last number was you said and then say the number after that sort of in reverse order. So you can start to see like the brain like break apart. So I either do that or I I have them, uh, you know, I have them like track my finger or something. One, it helps distract them as they're, as they're going under, but it also gives me a sense on how they're responding to the, you know, clinically to the, to the induction dose.
2: You mentioned in the chart you mentioned the, um, you get very high doses, you get an isoelectric. Mm-hmm. Curve. And then in the beginning you said the oscillations are blocking or inhibiting signal in the brain. Mm-hmm. The
1: no, I guess the way to think about it is is like this. So what you have here is you have a dynamical system. It's highly nonlinear. Right? And So things, things are coupled to each other. So you have these inhibitory excitatory circuits coupled to inhibitory excitatory circuits here. And so with that coupling, when you give a so if, if I go too far, right, if I go too far I'm going to get this and there's effectively, for the sake of this discussion, there's effectively little to no activity. You're completely right. But when you stop at these states here, what's occurring is, is that because the system is coupled, right, it doesn't just shut it down. It actually generates oscillations. It's just like, um, it's just like have, you, have you seen, there's a, there's a video on YouTube where there's a bridge in Tacoma, Washington, and the wind starts to hit it and it does this. It's because you've hit the mode of that that bridge. So you're hitting the modes of these circuits. And it turns out with GABA, you have modes that are about 10 hertz and modes that are also in the slow oscillation realm. So oscillation, or I don't know if you've ever done this. Have you ever, like if you go to a gymnasium that has a basketball, like a basketball stadium, a basketball court, and you stand under, the, stand under the basket, the floor under the basket is warped because it's set that way so when people jump and they land, they don't damage their knees. It doesn't sit right on the concrete. So if you go there and you're, uh, if you go to the gym and you're by yourself, you do this here, you can rock the whole, you can rock the whole gymnasium floor. You're finding the mode of that floor. You're generating an awesome, os- the same thing is happening here. And the nature of the modes depends upon the connectivity in the circuits that are connected to different brain. That's all, that's physically what's happening.
2: I'm interested about the slide with 57 years uh, aged brain and 56 years young brain. Mm -hmm. Is that because of the comorbid factors like hypertension, diabetes, or?
1: So, so the first is, so, The the first issue is like I don't know, we haven't investigated it systematically, but I really think there's something there because as people get older, their EEGs tend to look more and more like this. There's no question about that. So there's some measure of frailty or aging there. And then it makes sense that it could happen faster or slower in some people. The other the other group of patients that I've seen this in is in patients who've had chemotherapy, like pretty extensive chemotherapy. You know, it looks something like they look faded like this or like the the guy who had the huge infection, right? He looked like, you know, he looked like this 80-year-old woman, you know, over here. So, and then I had one anecdotal story where I had this guy who was uh, about 30 years old, 33 or so, and uh, I was talking to him, I was asking him, taking his history, and he was just coming to have like a hernia repair or something like that, and... Something didn't seem right. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, what it was. And so I always ask everybody to exercise. He says, Yeah, I go to the gym now. He says, but I used to play rugby. All right. So I put the EG on him. And he 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 looked like this, right? Already. So I I think there is something there. How old was he? 33. 30. Yeah. So he he was at least here. Right? He wasn't there. All right. So I, I think there is something there. It's, it's an, well, the first thing I'll say, it's an empirical observation, and you know, it has to be verified. But, but the fact that it, it does reliably change with age, doesn't surprise, it doesn't surprise me that it would change along other dimensions, too. We should study it systematically. Question?
2: Was he more sensitive to
1: propofol? Was he m- more sensitive to propofol? Actually, I don't remember. I, I don't know. I, I'd have to go back and look. Typically, it does though. You're, 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 I think your, your hypothesis is correct. They, they typically, and I'm going to show that later on in the lecture this afternoon. That what I would generate with young people with about 120 or propofol with older patients, I can generate with 20 or 30. Reliably.
0: How about patients with MS or Alzheimer's? Have you done some on them? I
1: haven't done any in Alzheimer's patients. I haven't done any MS patients, um, but. The, um, the conjecture is, depending upon their age, they would at least have diminished amplitude. And the MS patients, you know, the MS patients I've taken care of, the ones which I can remember, I took care of before I was using the EEG. And we always said, you know, be, go gentle on your dosing of the drugs. I and mean, we were just told that empirically, right? So I haven't measured the EEG in them, but I, I would bet that there's evidence of diminished uh, conduction.
2: Maybe you're
0: going to talk about
1: that this afternoon, but how do you use this when you wake the patient up? Because that's
0: yeah. interesting, I think. Because oh, yeah. See where the patient is, because now we don't really know. We just yeah,
1: I'm just talking MRIs. now, right? Yeah, show me the money, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> show me the money, right? Yeah, no question, right? That's what I to know. <laughs> I'm going to show you the money this okay. afternoon, right, right. No, but I use, it, I use it to wake the patients up, too. I, I can wake them up on a dime. Because what happens is, so, so let's say here's the state that they're in with just pure propofol. They have the same effective state with the combinations of drugs, but it's sitting over here. The same pattern, right? So when I dial back the Remy, you know, and I turn off the propofol, they come right, too. That's been my experience. And and I can understand why that's the case, because, I, you, you know, I've used. I'm not using the propofol to exclusively do the hyperpolarization and generate the 10 hertz oscillation. I'm using other drugs to generate those, and if they come off quicker than the propofol, then it's much easier to wake the person up. And, and that's the. And I said that's what I've observed empirically. But I'll, I'll show you some cases where we're using this, and because the dosing regimens that we're using are small fractions of what you would typically or would be recommended for people, even after you adjust for age.
2: Around the patients the in the operating room, it's like when when should we not touch
1: the patient? Or mm-hmm. when is it, when is it still safe mm-hmm. to touch the patients? I mean when yeah. they're when they're ready to start, you mean?
0: No, when when uh, when,
1: when, they're they're to, yeah. when, when they're coming to when they're coming to? Yeah. Yeah. So so just so just two quick sentences and I'll say this again you know later on. So what I do is uh, like if I'm using a combination of drugs, I'm using Dex, Dex Remy and propofol what have you. So the DEX I turn off 40 minutes before the end of the case. The remi I cut down to maybe half the dose that I'm, and I'm, I'm gradually dialing the propofol down during the case. During the case, I'm trying to see how low a propofol level I can get and still maintain stable patterns. Mm-hmm. And so by then I've gotten down to, let's say, let's say it's more like, let's say it's more like this guy here, right? So I'm down to about maybe, you know, 60 or 70 mics per kilo per minute, which is really nothing for him. So what I tell the residents is that I go, don't reverse the muscle relax until you're really ready to wake him up. Because as soon as you do that, he's going to come right to. So we wait. At the last minute, reverse the muscle relaxation. He starts to move right then. Turn the propofol off. Just wake him up.
0: So I want
1: to see if Houdini has any questions. Oh, sorry. They're all asleep. It looks like over there.
0: Guys, no questions? Okay, so the last question is from uh, Naveed Nir. So
2: just one thing that occurred to me that correlates with these charts are the requirement of sleep, depending on how old you are. three-year-old mm-hmm. needs a lot more sleep than an eight-year-old. And there's also inter- individual variation. Some people need to sleep six hours, some need to sleep four hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- does that correlate at all? Like, Do you have people that are, I guess, that don't need to sleep a lot, have a different signature? or
1: I mean that's a good question, but I, I think I think underlying um, so 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 I look at I look at sleep as a physiologic response, like to the circuits and the state that they're in and your ability to use your circuits. Like for example, like my wife has has a hell of a time trying to sleep because for whatever reason she's always had insomnia. All right. So what I think it, it may correlate with sleep, but I don't know that. I I haven't looked at that, right? What I think this more relates to here is the fact that you have many more connections. Remember, you go through a period early on where you make all these connections in the brain, then you prune them back. So you're constantly pruning back these, and it's the inhibitory interneurons that you're pruning back. So your ability to generate those dynamics earlier on, in other words, the substrate, Is in a different state. And you could ask, well, what's the physiologic response? One of them being sleep with that substrate. And I think that's a I think that's a perfectly legit question. But I think most of this you can just explain by the fact that the circuits are fairly young. You have a lot of connections. You have a lot of inhibitory dynamics because this to generate this right here, you need the inhibitory dynamics between the thalamus and cortex. That's what we think. That that's what our models tell us, and that's what our Experiments tell us where we stuck electrodes in both those places in, like, rodents, right? So I, I think that all we need to make that inference is the connectivity. I don't think I have to infer. I don't think I need to know what their sleep states are.
2: You mean we can infer the level of plasticity looking at these charts on the, on the patient?
1: I think the level of connectivity. Connectivity and also gabergic inhibition. That, that, that's, that's sort of the conjecture. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. Professor Brown, thank Great. you very much. Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you. Thank you, guys.